America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from Crisis Group's lovely Brussels offices. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, joining from Mexico City. This week, we are talking once again about the war in Ukraine. The angle we're taking this time is the devastating humanitarian toll of the war, which has now entered its third month. The beginning of this month has been marked by a resurgence of fighting in the east and south uh, with what appears to be a rethought Russian approach, as well as continuing strikes in central and western Ukraine. The war's civilian cost has been immense. While exact numbers are hard to come by, it's clear that thousands and surely tens of thousands of Ukrainians have been killed. These numbers are likely to increase further as fighting continues. The war has also caused the largest refugee crisis in living memory, with nearly 8 million people internally displaced and over 5 million fleeing abroad. For those who have stayed put, life is significantly harder. Essential goods, including food and medicine, are in scarce supply across the country. Even worse, Ukrainians living in besieged towns like Mariupol lack access to water, food, heat, electricity, or a way out. To talk about the human consequences of this war, and particularly to focus in on the uh, dynamics of this tremendous scale of internal displacement, we are joined by Simon Schlegel. Simon is Crisis Group Senior Ukraine Analyst. He joined us at the beginning of the year after working in Ukraine with Karatas. For the time being, as the war continues, he is based in Warsaw, but remains in close contact with people throughout Ukraine. Simon, welcome to War and Peace. Thanks for having me. Can you talk to us a little bit, Simon, about how displacement has changed over the course of the last two months? The escalation of the war was quite rapid, but it has gone through several phases. Has displacement gone through several phases as well? Absolutely. In the first days of the war, people who fled were mainly those who were well prepared, who saw the war coming who had fueled up cars or pre-reserved tickets, who had their documents ready and who had a plan where they were going. And they mainly went to Western Ukraine, which was safer. Uh, they stayed for a couple of days. They could stay in hotels or in holiday cabins and then decide what their options are. Their main need for them was good information and accommodation that was affordable usually to them. And they often made it across the border or into safer areas of Ukraine without much assistance. What the main difficulties that they faced were checkpoints along the road that made road traffic much slower. And they also could, in some instances, face a degree of hostility because they didn't look very much like refugees. They were usually well off and well prepared but we're still in danger in their homes. And how has that changed over recent weeks? What's been the difference between the refugees that first left and those that are leaving or are moving internally now? 
So as the Russians closed in on major urban centers in Kiev and Kharkiv, traveling out by car became much riskier and people relied much more on evacuation trains. And what happened there is that to get on one of these trains, you already had to go through an ordeal inside the city and family separation, something that in the first days happened right at the border, then already happened at train stations in the affected cities. Uh, the people were then already separated and often already traumatized because these cities were already under attack. Uh, they came on overcrowded trains. They traveled for hours and sometimes for days with not adequate food or water. They arrived in Western Ukraine very exhausted and many of them were already in need of immediate medical aid, uh, food and these cities in Western Ukraine, they started to overcrowd so that lots of people in this group of arrivals then had to go look either for communal shelters or for places further out in more rural areas. So how did people decide whether to stay in Ukraine or to leave the country and look for shelter in neighboring countries or in Europe, which has at least officially been very welcoming? Much of that decision is based on whether people had somewhere to go or whether they had at least a good imagination of how it would be to cross the border and go into a neighboring country. Ukraine has had a very big labor migration force over the past decades, and many people didn't travel across the border for the first time. Such people were likelier to have the courage and the capacity to make that decision quickly and to travel. And many people had relatives or former employers or current employers that they could turn to in Poland or Czech Republic or Slovakia or further afield and have a place for a couple of days and then they could figure out their options. For people who had nowhere to go and who had no language skills and for whom it would be the first time to really venture into a foreign country, this decision was much harder and many people really relied on the familiarity of Ukraine, of being able to speak, of being able to know how to deal with the state, to know how to access state benefits, to know how to look for a place to live. So for people without these experiences, it was much harder and there's a clear generational picture there. Younger people were the first to cross into neighboring countries, whereas elderly people with less such experience of out-migration of the country were more likely to stay behind. And there's a huge gender component to this too. Do you want to talk to us a little bit, describe how that has played out? On the first day of the war, Ukraine introduced martial law, which forbade men between the ages of 18 and 60 to leave the country because they might be needed in defending the country. So men would be rejected in leaving and often they didn't then even attempt to cross the border. In the first few days, many men would accompany their families to the border and then go back into Ukraine. In Western Ukraine, it was very hard for single men to find accommodation. It was also very hard for men who had legitimate reasons to be fleeing because they were not up for uh, mobilization. There are men with disabilities or chronic illnesses or men who are single fathers or men who have three or more children who are legally allowed across the border, but who might not have the right documents with them to prove that they are exempt from the rule. And they might be stranded in Western Ukraine, for example, because they need to, to get hold of these documents. And for people like this, it could be very hard to find uh, accommodation because in communal shelters, they're usually in schools or in sport halls, 
there is no gender separation and officials are reluctant to post men there where they are a few among many women and children. For the private sector, where people rely on people opening their flats and houses uh, for refugees to stay for a couple of days, it was also very hard for single men, but also for men who were the caretaker of somebody to find accommodation because people were just suspicious that a man of military age in their house might attract attention from all from the police, but also from the territorial defense, which are quite a new force, a newly armed force in Ukraine. So you don't want to attract their attention. And that's why many people were afraid to break the law and to attract unwanted attention if they would give shelter to a man. So just to clarify, territorial defense is the unit subordinated to the MOD or the countrywide unit is the wrong term, but series of units, the forces that have been stood up by civilians who have taken up arms to defend the country. And what you're saying is that they were, what, looking around to make sure that nobody was evading? Why were people particularly afraid of the territorial defense forces? People were not necessarily afraid of them, but these are locals who have been armed recently and who are very vigilant, for whom war is also very new. And I've heard about cases in our interviewing where people who didn't look familiar or people who were not from that settlement were approached by them so they could then check their identity documents, for example, and make sure that they had a good reason to be in this place and that they were not saboteurs or trying to undermine the Ukrainian defense effort. For men at checkpoints, they could be asked to explain their reasons. Why are they traveling and where they are traveling to? And especially when they would arrive in Western cities, municipal authorities who gave them shelter or who gave their family shelter, they would make sure that they apply within 24 hours, which is stipulated by the law, in that new place for the recruitment office. And territorial defense could make sure that this had actually happened. You've done a really great job of describing the difficulties that men have faced as a result of the government's decision to ensure that men of military age stay in the country. How has it affected the women and children that have left and and what lasting impact might it have on families? The first effect that it has on families is that they then need to cover living expenses in two places. The family that crosses the border or that travels to safer places in western or central Ukraine have to find the place that they need to pay for. And the man who stays behind also need to cover living costs. This just heightens the burden on each family. Then the women and children who leave the country, they have to somehow cover these living expenses and at the same time also burden the care duties that come with a separate family. These are then single moms or grandparents. In these groups, they sometimes can cover these these, uh, care duties, but it makes finding a job, for example, in Poland, much harder. The Polish labor market needs workforce right now, but such a big chunk of these new arrivals are mothers and their children, and that puts a lot of limits on what these women actually can do and how they can actually cover their living costs. And in many cases, it makes them more dependent on state benefits, which will make it harder in the long run to keep this very welcoming atmosphere up. That is definitely one effect. But women who are traveling alone with their children or alone, they are also more vulnerable to exploitation. And this is 
not just anecdotal evidence, but many cases where men have offered help and then try to use the vulnerability of that situation for their purposes to exploit these women economically or sexually. Uh, many such cases have been documented along the border and the Polish government has uh, even started its own investigation into such cases. There's been a campaign with billboards and SMSs to alert women to these dangers and to make them very wary of whom they accept help from, which again is not always easy to differentiate between the well-meaning, because many of them are really well-meaning and are volunteers and not recognizable as state representatives, and the official helping institutions. That distinction in this very stressful situation is not always easy to make. So we've talked about housing needs and we've talked about some of the risks and dangers. And I guess we've talked about the question of the ability to earn money. What are some of the other needs of uh, displaced people that require intervention in order to meet? One pressing need is schooling, because so many of the IDPs are children who need to go back to school. But as a matter of fact, they then often end up living in schools uh, because so many of these communal shelters are in schools, which delays the return to school, not only of the IDP children, but also of the local children. And for the time being, much of the schooling that is going on is online. Uh, Ukraine has had a good experience with that from the pandemic and has now uh, good material and good procedures in place how to keep up online schooling. But latest in September, kids should go back to school. And then many of the schools in the places that have received many IDPs will have to decide what to do with the people that are living there and then to decide with what to do with the newly arrived children, how to integrate them. Another burden has been put on the medical system. Many medical institutions in Kiev and in Kharkiv have been evacuated, bringing patients to Western Ukraine, which makes it now very hard for them to also deal with the illnesses and injuries among the IDP population and with whatever medical needs locals might also have. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Elissa and I are talking to our colleague, Simon Schlegel, about the displacement crisis and other humanitarian impacts of Russia's war on Ukraine. Simon, we discussed the gender question, but are there other groups that face specific vulnerabilities uh, that uh, our listeners might not be aware of or conscious of? Undertaking the journey now out of these beleaguered cities, such as Mariupol or Volnavacha, is a very stressful undertaking. It's very dangerous and you have to be basically fit to do that. So for elderly people, for people with a disability, for people with a chronic illness, or for people with a, a mental health condition, it is very, very hard to even make it on the few buses or on the few evacuation trains that make it out of these places. Lots of these people are just left behind, uh, not because people choose to do so, but because often they have no other choice to do that. And lots of times elderly people are reliant on their vegetable patches around their houses or on the pensions that they receive 
in their local community and therefore they are very hesitant to leave and they stay behind in danger and often the places that are hardest hit they haven't had basic supplies basic services for many weeks now which adds to the suffering of these people who are already marginalized another important problem are personal documents people had to leave very quickly people had to leave right out of a bomb shelter they often don't have the right documents with them that might prove their identity or that might prove a condition that makes them eligible to a state service. Often also Roma people are affected by this because they often don't have documents or they're not registered in one place, which makes it then very much harder for them to apply for state benefits in a new place, but also to apply for humanitarian assistance from large donor organizations that have uh, cash programming or that have uh, food programs in place. These usually also need identity documents uh, in order to report correctly about their aid. And so the need to have your documents in place to cross the border, but also to access aid inside the country, this excludes very many people. So with 8 million people displaced internally over such a short period of time, a massive humanitarian response has had to be started. Who is responding and how well have they responded? The response is absolutely impressive. And on the forefront of these are grassroots organizations, Ukrainian organizations, sometimes not even organizations, just volunteers who very quickly organize themselves through social media, through existing networks to respond to people arriving in their towns, to shelter them, to organize food provision, to organize medical care, to organize hygiene products, to organize psychosocial support. This has worked very well, um, but it is based on unpaid work and it's based on donations, many of which also come from Western countries. So connections into Europe have been used very, very effectively. People organize their own networks to bring in private shipments of food supplies or of medical supplies. Municipalities have uh, relied on their partner cities in Poland or in Germany to bring in so that they would collect uh, donations among their inhabitants and bring in food supplies. So we've seen this response very, very quickly. And much of it has been not very coordinated. But in this situation of urgent needs and needs that are so widespread, this hasn't really been so, so big a problem because speed was the first criteria and because needs were so widespread, even if a truckload of supplies didn't reach where it was intended to reach, it would still probably reach somebody who is in need. Now, as the needs become more uh, differentiated, now as the response takes longer, it will uh, be unsustainable to rely on donations and to rely on unpaid work alone. And therefore, it's really important now that bigger organizations, international organizations, who have spent much of the past eight weeks or so setting up shop and also collecting and recollecting their teams who's, who often have been dispersed in Kiev or in eastern Ukraine, uh, recollecting these people and building their response based on more sustainable programs and on funding that uh, will be coming for the next two or three years or so, so that they have a long period to plan for. So there's um, the people who have been displaced into urban areas, people who have just been displaced into rural areas, and people sheltering in place obviously have very different needs. 
Are the responses more adequate to some of these groups than to others? Are there gaps that it's worth specifically highlighting? The bulk of the response so far has been in uh, bigger cities. And now, as more people are crowded out of these cities because living costs there have risen so badly, more people will be sheltering or be displaced to smaller places, to small towns and to villages where they also find very different living conditions. Some people who might have lived in cities first need to get used to living in a village. Villages have a long tradition of self-supplying themselves. So now as spring comes and you can grow your own food in a village, that is definitely also a benefit. But many of these small villages, they are overstretched and they are still relying very heavily on donations. And donations reach them later than they would reach a big city. And uh, many of them are administered by municipalities that have been decentralized recently. So they have been merged with neighboring villages. They have new authorities in place that might not be working harmonically yet, but that have now the possibility to allocate more of the funds that they raise among their inhabitants directly to the needs of the local population, which is a good thing. But right now, with the crisis, they also receive a lot of new inhabitants who are not taxpayers and who do not add to the revenue of that uh, municipality. And they might need help from the central state, which often is a bit of a problem because as soon as a municipality goes knocking on the door of the central state and said, we don't have the means to cover our needs, this to the central state looks like mismanagement. And it is very important that uh, the central state is, and also international organizations, are more attentive to the needs of these smaller municipalities whose schools and whose medical points, they usually don't have hospitals, but these small medical stations, the, the resources in these institutions are really overstretched and it's really important that they get the attention and the funds that they need to receive and to cover the needs of the IDPs that uh, end up there. Given the pressures that you've just described on local services, education, hospitals, is there a risk of conflict between the IDPs and local populations? And if so, how can that be mitigated? I'm afraid there is a certain risk of conflict because also these newly merged municipalities, they allocate their budgets to the needs of the, the local population, often actually by contracting NGOs, which is another quite new feature of uh, Ukrainian administration that municipalities can contract NGOs that then would cover their childcare or elderly care or medical care needs. Now, with less revenue and higher costs, they often cannot fulfill these contracts and childcare and elderly care for local people might just fall on the table. And that is real danger in the long run to create conflicts between locals and newly arrived IDPs. And one way to deal with that is for the international community to not only fund local partner organizations or the central state, but also to approach NGOs that have government contracts that are not fulfilled right now and to chip in for a couple of months or a couple of years as long as it takes that the state, the local state, can cover these costs again. I think this kind of builds on this. Are there other thoughts you have on 
actions that civil society, the Ukrainian government, and international organizations can take now that will put them in better shape for a sustainable response? Because even if the fighting should stop tomorrow, some of the after effects of this war are going to continue for a while. So what should all of these folks be thinking about and doing to set themselves up better for whether the fighting continues or not uh, over the coming weeks and months? So one important aspect of this early response was that all organizations, no matter what their specialization, what their core capacity was before the war, uh, they all more or less did the same. They, they covered the immediate basic needs, food, medical, hygiene, and shelter needs of the IDPs. And thereby they didn't use their core competences often. Now it is very important as money is flowing in from international organizations, as they are looking for local partner organizations, that they really are clear about what can they bring to a partnership and who are they looking for, what functions and what experience does a, a local partner organization have to bring. All that money that is coming in now has the potential to push organizations that did women's rights or urban development or human rights before they are pushed towards humanitarian aid because that's what there is money for right now. But that would be a big shame because this is going to be a long crisis and we need a, a very broad ecosystem of organizations with very broad spectrum of specializations. And international organizations should be very careful that they do not crowd out organizations with narrow specializations, but make the best of what is available. So following up on that a little bit, and just, I guess, with a final question, because we are running out of time, what about the accountability aspect of it all? It's an awful lot of money and effort flowing in. And as you said, a lot of these folks have been working for free for the last two months. Are people thinking about how to ensure that this aid is transparent and accountable? And if not, what could they be doing to do that better? One of the very important reasons why this volunteer help has been so successful and so welcome, even from the state side, many municipalities have been taking donations and volunteer work, is because it's largely undocumented. You have contacts, you bring in a truckload of supplies, you distribute them without having to write a needs assessment, without having to have security protocols, without having to write a final report. And that is going to change. And it's very important that the people who received municipalities mainly who received this aid uh, at some point that they are being trained in how to write a good project application, how to write a do no harm strategy, how to write a report. Uh, that's a, a very sought after need now. Another transparency problem that I see is that for many local organizations, the effort to support the army or the territorial defense and the effort to support IDPs is one and the same. They are paid out of the same budgets. They are shipped in the same trucks and distributed by the same people. And that for many large international organizations with a purely humanitarian mandate can be a real problem because they might, they're conscious of their humanitarian mandate and they fear for their future humanitarian access if they now work with organizations who also support one of the belligerent parties. So it's really important for Ukrainian local organizations that they are transparent about how they differentiate between supplies to the army and supplies to people with humanitarian needs. And it's also important for international organizations that they clearly state where their red lines are and what they can deal with in terms of these blurred boundaries.
Really important points. Simon, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this was uh, really a very rich discussion, and I feel smarter for having had it. So again, just thank you so much. My pleasure. To read more of Simon's and Crisis Group's work on Ukraine, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org, where you'll be able to find extensive coverage of the Ukraine war. Also, keep an eye out for upcoming reports on the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and the impact that commodity shocks resulting from Russia's invasion of the country are having on other parts of the world. You can find Simon on Twitter at Simon underscore Schlegel underscore. You should also follow Crisis Group and Alyssa and me on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Alyssa is at Alyssa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Olaker. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is also at Crisis Group. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have any suggestions for topics or guests for the show, do please give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check it out and listen to some of the others. A massive thanks, uh, as usual, to our producer, Bool Media, and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson. And of course, the biggest thanks to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks, but thanks for tuning in for now and goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.